Before you say, I don't believe it, it's too crazy, get a load of this. Jeffrey Dahmer, Milwaukee's cannibal serial killer, was there when Adam Walsh was taken from the Sears store in Hollywood, Florida, 40 years ago. And that's just the beginning. Dahmer lived and worked only about 15 minutes away. And multiple witnesses put him inside the mall on the same day and time Adam disappeared. And these people are more than credible. One witness is a kid who was playing next to Adam right before it all went down. Another is the mother of a little girl who was there too. She swears Dahmer was watching him. And yet a third person actually spoke to Dahmer and followed him into the toy department. Just two weeks before Adam's abduction, an eerily similar attempt was made on another child in a Sears 50 miles away. You wouldn't believe the similarities between Dahmer and the police artist sketch from that incident. And if you're thinking, what is this? I thought they caught Adam Walsh's murderer and it wasn't Dahmer. Well, you'd be right. Sort of. But there is more to this story than you know. It's a strange one, and I cannot wait to unpack this for you. Welcome to True Crime Recaps. I'm Amy. Now, here's what you might have heard. In October 1983, a real dirtbag named Otis Toole made a jailhouse confession to the kidnap and murder of six-year-old Adam Walsh. The next day, he said he made it all up. For the next 13 years, he repeated that confession recant cycle about 24 more times until he died in prison of liver failure in 1996. The thing is, his confessions, all of them, not as cut and dried as you might think. Let's start at the Hollywood Mall in Hollywood, Florida on a sweltering Monday, July 27th, 1981. Adam Walsh and his mother walked into Sears around noon-ish. Right in front of them was the toy department with like this very cool display of video games. A group of four kids were already playing and Adam wanted to join in. The last words Ravey Walsh said to her son were, I'm going right over here to the lamp department. And he said, Okay, mommy, I know where that is. She estimates she was gone for about 10 minutes, although other reports say it might have been closer to 15 or 20. But regardless, when she got back, Adam and the rest of the kids were gone. Sometime in that first chaotic rush of panic, a Sears security guard admitted something that changed everything. Remember the other kids playing with the video games? Well, they were a little older. Adam was six. They were like nine to 12. Not long after Reve left, they started fighting over the game. So the security guard kicked them out. She wasn't sure if Adam was one of the kids that she hustled out the door into the parking lot. He might have been. He might not have. Either way, he was gone. At that point, Reve called the police and her husband, John. Now, you probably know John Walsh as the host and creator of America's Most Wanted, but back then, he was a VP of marketing for a luxury hotel chain. His office was about 20 minutes away from the Hollywood Mall. As for the police, it didn't take them long to get there at all. The station was right across the street. They launched a massive search, but it was like the boy had just vanished. Now, if you're not familiar with South Florida, let me give you a quick orientation. Hollywood sits between Miami and Fort Lauderdale in Broward County. It's closer to North Miami. We're talking minutes away. But back then, Hollywood was considered to be safer. 
Adam's kidnapping shook the community to its core. Thousands of tips flowed in, so many that the police had the Walsh family and their close friends answering the phones. The first hot tip they seized on were corroborating stories about a blue van parked in the fire lane close to the Sears entrance nearest the toy department. That's the same entrance Adam and his mom had walked in. Now, some witnesses saw a creepy guy in the toy department near the video game display. Others reported seeing the same creepy guy throwing a little boy into the back of the van and driving away. Now, there weren't many more details to go on. No tags, just basically a blue van. Well, you can imagine how well that went. If you drove a blue van, better off leaving that at home and riding your bike instead. Blue vans were being pulled over left and right with no sign of Adam. And then suddenly the search was over. The story gets fairly brutal from here. So if you're not up for it, this would be the time to cover your ears. Two weeks after he disappeared, Two fishermen found Adam's severed head floating in the canal off the turnpike near Vero Beach, Florida, 125 miles north of the mall where he was last seen. The rest of his body was never found and never has been to this day. Dental records and a friend of the family ID'd the remains. John and Rive never saw it. Medical examiners said the killer used a sharp blade, possibly about five inches long, but it wasn't a clean cut. It took at least five. But when did he die? How long had his remains been floating in the canal? Those questions were harder to answer. His head wasn't badly decomposed, and there didn't seem to be as much animal damage as you might expect if his head had been in the water for like the 15 days that he was missing. It was more likely the killer threw it in the water only a few days before it was found. But that's not to say Adam was alive for those whole two weeks. Doctors believe he may have been dead for at least 10 days. And small mercy here, the decapitation wasn't his cause of death. But how he did die, they weren't sure. They couldn't tell without his body, which means there were still more questions than answers. A lieutenant on the case had this to say to the Miami Herald about the gruesome find. The ordinary criminal with this much heat would have dropped the kid off by the roadside, stabbed him, smothered him, or just killed him. But this mutilation is the work of a psychopath. Yeah, so true. And potentially so important to figuring out who did it. The search for the truth was about to begin. Now, it's a little known fact that Jeffrey Dahmer was living in South Florida when Adam was taken. And like I said before, he was allegedly at the mall at the same time on the same day he went missing from the Sears toy department. The witnesses I mentioned earlier say he was in the toy department with Adam. In fact, they say he led him away before the security guard broke up the fight between the older kids. In a book about this case called The Unsolved Murder of Adam Walsh, crime reporter Arthur J. Harris sifted through thousands of police files, interviews, and witness statements to reveal some surprising information, which the Miami Herald, ABC's Primetime, and other outlets have shared over the years. A lot of what you're going to hear is based on his legwork and that of one of the witnesses, Willis Morgan, the author of the book Frustrated Witness. And I'll bet you can guess what his feelings were on this subject, just based on that title. So, 10 years before Dahmer was arrested for his crimes in Wisconsin, he may have been shopping for victims at malls down south. 
When his face made national news in 1991, it triggered a second round of police reports in Florida, starting with an incident that happened two weeks before Adam was taken. This was in Palm Beach, 50 miles away from Hollywood. A 10-year-old boy was checking out some toys at Sears when a creepy guy came up next to him. The store was fairly empty and his instincts told him to run and find help. And as it turned out, he was right. The guy chased him through the store, but he left when the little boy reached his mother. Police created a sketch of his would-be kidnapper, and there is no doubt in his mind that the guy was Jeffrey Dahmer. You're going to hear that phrase a lot in this story. Now, seeing Dahmer's mugshot after 10 years caused physical reactions for people who came in contact with him in South Florida. They were absolutely sure he was the guy. Take Willis Morgan, for example. He worked at the Miami Herald in 1981, and on the day Adam was taken from Sears, Willis was at Radio Shack in the same mall when he was approached by a disheveled, drunk-looking guy with dirty blonde hair and evil eyes. No doubt in his mind, that guy was Jeffrey Dahmer. At the time, Dahmer seemed to be trying to pick him up. And when Willis didn't respond, he walked away. But the encounter was so disturbing that Willis secretly followed him out of concern for the next person he might confront. Now, the last place he saw Dahmer go before he stopped trailing him, the Sears toy department. And yes, after Adam's abduction, he tried to report what happened, but it wasn't followed up on. Even one of the boys that was playing the video games next to Adam at Sears years later wrote to John Walsh to tell him there was a man in the store that motioned him and Adam over, but only Adam went to him. When this case was, you know, in its most active phase, he was shown a lineup of mugshots and he said Otis Tool, not the guy he saw. Years later, when Dahmer's picture was released, he had an emotional reaction to that. He was sure that was the guy Adam left the store with. And come on, if you're a six-year-old kid and you had to choose between a very scary-looking Otis Tool and a menacing Dahmer, well, I'm going with Dahmer. Dahmer would be the one who looks most like the authority figure you should listen to. Even Dahmer's own father thought he could have done it. He called the America's Most Wanted tip line after his son's arrest to suggest someone question his son Jeffrey about Adam's murder. It took an FBI agent on Dahmer's case in Wisconsin to contact John Walsh about the connection between his suspect and John's son's murder in order to get someone to come up and talk to him. John is the one who pressured the Hollywood PD to go up and interview Dahmer. So, what was Dahmer doing in Florida in the first place? To answer that, you need to hear about his first victim, 18-year-old Stephen Hicks. Now, this was in June of 1978, and Dahmer, who was also 18, was living in Ohio and dreaming about some really dark stuff, domination, control, sex with dead bodies. Not exactly your typical teenage fantasies. And when he spotted Stephen hitchhiking on his way home from the mall, he saw an opportunity. His parents were out of town and he had the house to himself. By the next day, Stephen had been strangled, dismembered, and his bones crushed beyond recognition with a sledgehammer, then hidden in the crawl space under the house. Not long after that, Dahmer joined the army and ended up on a base in Germany. 
He was assigned to be a medic trained in human anatomy, if you can believe it. But by March of 81, the army had had enough of him and they discharged him early. It wasn't dishonorable, although in hindsight, horrific accounts of men, including his bunkmate, being brutally raped while he was there, combined with his antisocial, violent behavior. Yeah, that probably should have made him more of a concern for his commanders. But in the end, his discharge came down to his alcohol and drug abuse. They offered him a ticket anywhere he wanted to go in the U.S., and he chose South Florida so he could avoid his father and get some sun. Pretty much the same reason everybody chooses South Florida. He was pretty much a bum for a while, but eventually he got a job off the books as a dishwasher, cashier, janitor at this sandwich slash pizza place. Now, guess what the store's utility vehicle was? You got it. A blue van. Now, in the spring and summer of 81, while Dahmer was cleaning bathrooms in a pizza place in South Florida and doing God knows what else, Otis Toole was exploring his own twisted fantasies, crisscrossing the country on this violent rampage with his lover, Henry Lee Lucas. Otis was a mentally challenged drifter from Jacksonville, an admitted murderer and an arsonist with Yeah, most of his screws loose. Henry Lee was a savage killer from Virginia with a penchant for publicity. The two of them fell in love at a soup kitchen in Jacksonville. Ultimately, they went on to basically create the blueprint for false confessions after claiming responsibility for a little over 1,000 murders spanning the country. Less than 20 of those were actually attributed to them. Was one of their victims Adam Walsh? Well, that depends on how much you're willing to believe. Otis confessed to Adam's murder in October 1983, and this wasn't exactly a spontaneous heart-to-heart with detectives. Here's what happened, and stick with me because it's a little bit of a winding journey, but I'm going to try and keep it simple. So, Otis was serving 20 years in North Florida for burning down a couple of buildings in Jacksonville. Meanwhile, his partner Henry was locked up in Texas on a weapons possession charge, but Henry was a smart psycho. He realized he could get special treatment and favors if he confessed to bigger crimes. To make a long story short, it later came out that he was being shown some police files and helped along by investigators eager to close their cases, and he was a willing patsy. But before the truth of Henry Lee's confessions was revealed, he claimed his partner Otis helped him in some of the murders and or did some himself. With all his confessions, Henry was developing quite a reputation as the world's deadliest serial killer, which he loved, and in exchange, he was treated like a king. Steak dinners, his own TV, cigarettes, visits around the country to help identify crime scenes. I mean, not too bad for a prisoner. And just like cops were flying in from all over the country for a chance to talk to Henry Lee, police were lining up at Otis Tool's cell in North Florida to ask him some questions. By this point, Otis had laid claim to about 65 murders. In reality, he was probably responsible for six, two that they could prove, four that he actually knew real details about without prompting. Most were arson-related or stabbings, and all of them were on older adults. The youngest was a 20-year-old woman. So during one visit from a Florida lawman, Otis asked him if he was from Fort Lauderdale. He wasn't, but, you know, he was curious about the question. Otis implied he'd done something down there that he was willing to talk about. Now, 
related but possibly unrelated, you decide, around the same time, a movie about Adam Walsh's case was on TV. But Otis's knowledge of the case was off right from the start. To begin with, he claimed he and Henry Lee were in West Palm Beach together, trying to lure a child into his white Cadillac using candy and toys as bait. They said they got a boy, Adam, supposedly, and dismembered him, kept his head, and continued south to the Florida Keys. Now, remember that Adam's partial remains were found north of Hollywood not South, and no one could mistake West Palm Beach for Hollywood. It was obvious he was either lying or confused. So the next day, a detective from Texas took his turn with Otis, and while they were talking, he asked him, was it true that he'd murdered six-year-old Adam Walsh? Otis said, no, the youngest he would go was like 14. Okay. A week later, the team from Hollywood showed up to continue that first conversation, but accurate facts were hard to come by from Otis. According to the interview transcripts in the police files, the investigators led him through the supposed confession. It was more of a, let me tell you what you're going to tell me kind of a conversation. So let me give you an example. When they asked him what Adam was wearing, he said the kid had mittens on in Florida in July. And that's just one bizarre detail he made up. He said Henry Lee was the one who actually swung the machete that took Adam's head. The truth was, Henry had been arrested for Grand Theft Auto in Maryland on July 22nd, five days before Adam was taken. He was in a jail cell until October 1981, so obviously that was another lie. As the conversation went on, the cops showed him pictures of the area where Adam's remains had been found, the mile marker off the turnpike, the Sears store. They even ended up giving him a description of what Adam was wearing that day. He couldn't even pick Adam out of a lineup at first. They had to coach him on that. This went on and on until, what do you know, Otis had all the details of the case. In the days between these conversations, Otis recanted whatever the last thing he'd said was. It was very much, oh, yes, I did, meant no, I didn't. And there was no evidence that he was ever in South Florida in July of 1981 at all. So let me tell you a little bit more about a guy people did see in that area around that time. Adam's partial remains were found in the canal off the Florida Turnpike near mile marker 130 on August 10th, 1981. The next day, two Publix truck drivers reported seeing a blue van on the side of the turnpike near that mile marker just after midnight on Friday, August 7th. This is according to police reports summarized by reporter Arthur Harris. Publix, which that's a grocery store, by the way, they encouraged their drivers to stop and help stranded motorists if they could. I mean, who knows if they still do that, but at the time, in the early 80s, they did. And that's why the two drivers noticed the van on the side of the road. A car driving by might not have seen it at all through the vegetation, but the semis were high enough that they could see a man with a flashlight near the canal. They said it looked like he was dropping something round from a bucket into the water. They didn't stop because his hood wasn't up, flashers weren't on. It didn't look like he needed help, but it was strange. Strange enough for them to call it in after they heard about, you know, Adam's partial remains being found. But when they mentioned the blue van, the police shut it down because Otis drove a white caddy. So where was Otis when Adam disappeared? Well, 
That's a question they couldn't ever answer. So they tried tracing his steps, but the man was a degenerate drifter, so it wasn't quite as easy as checking his credit cards or calling his boss. With a lot of legwork, they tracked him to a hospital in Virginia about two weeks before this all went down. On July 24th, three days before Adam disappeared, Otis was at a Salvation Army in Virginia, begging for money to take a bus back to Jacksonville. They sent him to the Greyhound station with a check, and he was home in Jacksonville by July 25th. But did he stay there? And if he drove to Miami, where did he get the gas money? And why leave? At first, he said he didn't go anywhere after getting home. He claimed he only had about 20 bucks, not enough to travel on. But again, after a little conversating about it, they got him to say he found $300 in a coffee can buried under his mother's house, which he burnt down, by the way. So he then said he took the cash and drove down to Miami to trade sex for money because business was better down there than in Jacksonville. He said he ended up at the Hollywood Mall to window shop and noticed Adam on a bench outside Sears. He started talking to him, but in this version of his confession, he said he got him in the car with an offer of baseball cards. So what about that car? And what about the murder weapon? They tracked his white caddy down at a used car lot in Jacksonville, and they took carpet samples from the front and back. They tested for blood, and yeah, they found a little, but there wasn't enough to try and match it to Adams, and DNA at the time wasn't as far along as it is today. Unfortunately, there won't be a chance to check them again using modern technology because the carpet samples were lost, and the car was returned to the dealership and eventually junked. Now, what about that blood they found on the carpet? The simple answer is Otis and Henry Lee were killers, but as you already know, Henry Lee wasn't even there, and decapitating someone, much less a child as young as Adam, wasn't something Otis had ever gotten close to doing. But that's not to say that someone else couldn't have been bleeding in their Cadillac. So finding blood? Eh, It's not so surprising. As for the murder weapon, Otis did odd jobs for a handyman, so he had access to a machete and other tools. But by the time the confession train started, Otis didn't know where the machete was or what he did with it. Some stories, he said he buried it under his mother's house. Other times, he said he threw it into the canal. Eventually, they tracked it down to a used car dealer, an acquaintance of Otis, who said they used to trade cars. So weird. But he said that he found that machete. It was left in one of those cars, apparently not the caddy. And they tested it for blood and did find a trace, but not enough to run more tests to even say yes or no if the blood was even human, much less Adam's. So let's say despite all this, if Otis was the killer, what did he do with Adam's body? Hollywood flew him down to South Florida to get an answer to that question, and he had a few different stories for that, too. Just like the machete, he said he buried Adam under his mother's house. They looked. They didn't find anything linking to Adam. Then he directed them to mile marker, like 126, around there, and he got himself a trip to South Florida to point out the spot. You should also keep in mind that he didn't pick that spot randomly. He'd seen pictures of the area where the remains were found, and they discussed the mile marker. The police dug the entire place up with nothing to show for it. When they kept pushing him, he said he brought Adam's body back to Jacksonville, where he burned it and took the bloody carpets and the ashes to the dump. But how to prove something like that? They couldn't. 
In a 1984 interview with WTVN, Otis again claimed he had nothing to do with Adam's murder. Quote, that Adam Walsh case, it isn't, it ain't true. I didn't do that. You can go the whole way through a whole case and tell them you don't know nothing about it and you wait five or 10 minutes and you can double back and you can pick up different little details in it like beer cans, cigarette packs, trash by the side of the road or something like that, the way the road is or something like that. There ain't no way you can miss on it after you're done looking at all the pictures. They don't pay attention to that because they just want to clear the case and they don't care how they clear it as long as they clear it. And all of the things he said over the years, to me, that makes the most sense. At that point, the cops were also getting tired of his BS. He was becoming an embarrassment and they still hadn't found any evidence to charge him. So they basically let it drop. The man was doing multiple life sentences in prison, so they figured he wasn't going anywhere and he wasn't on the streets. But you remember those truck drivers who said they saw something strange off the turnpike on August 7th? The driver of that blue van? Well, let's get back to that blue van, Dahmer theory, for a second. The pizza sandwich place where he was working had a dumpster out back and an electric meter room behind it. It was one of those places where homeless people can sometimes hole up. Dahmer himself might have slept there before he earned enough money to get himself a room at one of those rent-by-the-hour motels on North Miami Beach. As it turned out, he might have killed to sleep in that electric meter room. Arthur Harris pointed out a police report from July 7th, 1981, listing Jeffrey Dahmer as the person who found a dead body behind the dumpster. He told his boss he'd been stepping over it all morning. It wasn't bloody or dismembered or, you know, half-eaten, so it might not have had anything to do with the serial killer, but that is a hell of a coincidence. Here's one more for you. In the meter room years later, an axe, a sledgehammer, and a blood spatter was found. The blood pattern would have been similar to what you'd see from someone on the floor being hit from above. And the meter room, it had a crawl space. Now, if Dahmer did have a part in Adam's murder, could that have been where he kept the boy? We know from his later victims that he liked to take his time with the bodies, but the Walsh family hadn't heard the last of Otis. In 1988, he raised his ugly head again and started reconfessing to Adam's murder. This time, in a series of letters he wrote to the Walsh family, the Sears store, the police, and inexplicably, Disney World. They were all a little different, but the gist was that unless Sears wanted him to start telling the world via the media how many children he kidnapped and murdered from their stores and exactly how easy it was to do it, he wanted them to give him thousands of dollars in cold, hard cash. And to the Walsh family, he said he would tell them where their son's body was if they gave him $5,000. Now, this is an interesting time to point out that at the time of the investigation, a reward was being offered for about $200,000. So if people like Henry and Otis had heard that, do you think that they would have murdered Adam or would they have dropped him off and tried to claim the money? So Dahmer left South Florida in early fall of 1981. He made his way from Ohio to Milwaukee, where he was finally arrested in 1991, after an almost victim managed to escape and convinced the police to come back to Dahmer's apartment with him. And how about this for poetic justice? When he was arrested, it was 10 years almost to the day that Adam disappeared. It's it's weird, right? 
When he was caught, they found 11 heads and various body parts in his apartment, among other gruesome trophies. In 1992, he got multiple life sentences for the murders of 15 people, although he admitted to killing 17. Police thought that there were probably more. Now, was Adam one of the victims he wasn't about to admit to? Questions started coming up about why Dahmer hadn't been interviewed about Adam's murder. Even the FBI agent on Dahmer's case thought there might be a connection. In fact, the agent thought he was denying it a little too much. Dahmer's lawyer had kept him away from Hollywood PD during the trial, but after he was sentenced, the link was strong enough that John Walsh asked them to fly up to Wisconsin to talk to the mass murderer. And of course, by that time, the host of America's Most Wanted had the kind of pull it would take to get that kind of movement on his son's case. So, did the notorious serial killer have anything to say about the infamous kidnapping and murder? In short, no. But they did catch him lying about it. He claimed he worked constantly. Jeffrey Dahmer, such a workaholic. And he never had time to go anywhere. It definitely, especially not to the Hollywood Mall. But his former boss said that that wasn't true at all. Dahmer worked part-time, barely, and he frequently showed up disheveled and drunk. Remember that FBI agent saying he was a little too insistent that he had nothing to do with Adam Walsh? But it was this statement that got Hollywood off his back. He said, quote, Why would I have admitted to murders the police would have known nothing about and then leave Adam Walsh out? Besides, I never went after children. My interest was in older adults of bar age and all of them that I met I thought were bar age. Huh. I mean, he did kill a 14-year-old and exposed himself to parents and children at a park, so... I don't know about all that, Jeffrey, but age six is a lot younger. Could he have been telling the truth? After that, there weren't too many follow-up questions, and the investigator took him at his word. But later, they got an official letter from Dahmer's appeals attorney basically telling them to stay away from his client and demanding the tape of the interview with a warning that whatever Dahmer had told him didn't count because he hadn't been read his rights. Hmm. So did he have something to hide after all? Now, famously, Dahmer claimed that after taking the life of Stephen Hicks in 1978, he didn't kill again until 87. Ten years of inactivity for a monster like that? (laughs) I don't think so. His bunkmate in the army is certain it's not true. He saw Jeffrey come back bloody after a weekend's off base, and he himself says he was raped and beaten by him. It may be more likely that Dahmer only confessed to those crimes he thought the cops would find out about anyway. And not so coincidentally, as Arthur Harris pointed out in his book, the murders he confessed to were in states without a death penalty. The Ohio death penalty went into effect after Stephen's murder. And Lord knows Dahmer was already a celebrity prisoner, you know, in a bad way. And if they knew he'd killed a child as young as six, Especially since it was such a high-profile case, he would be a marked man. Or, you know, also he might not have had anything to do with it at all. What do you think? So Dahmer was scary smart and cool under pressure. He murdered Stephen Hicks when he was 18, and no one ever had a clue about it until his arrest in 1991. 
Although on the flip side, yeah, why would he lie? At that point, behind bars with no chance of getting out, what did he have to lose? Why not confess to the murder of Adam Walsh? But then again, we are talking about one of the most brutal serial killers in history. So maybe a better question is, why wouldn't he lie? Maybe he just wanted to keep his secret about the high-profile case. John Walsh asked the DA in Florida to take the death penalty off the table in hopes of getting Dahmer to confess. But maybe Dahmer didn't believe him. Maybe he was trying to avoid the death penalty. Maybe he just wanted to watch the Walshes suffer, never really knowing for sure if he had anything to do with it. Or, again, maybe he was telling the truth and it was just a terrible, awful, crazy coincidence that he was in the same mall at the same time that another twisted soul was hunting a child there, which really, really is a level of evil that makes me never want to leave the house again. But no matter what the truth was, Hollywood PD dropped Dahmer as a suspect, and since he was killed by a vigilante inmate in 1994, sorry, not sorry about that, we may never know if he had more to say on the subject of Adam Walsh. And Otis died of liver failure in prison two years after Dahmer met his maker. Some people claim he made a deathbed confession saying he did it after all, but authorities say, nah, that never happened. Regardless, by 2008, with Adam's case still technically open, the Hollywood police decided to close it the best way they knew how. If Otis wanted to take credit for it, at least at one point, then they would give it to him. And they held a press conference saying he was the one responsible for Adam's death and the case was officially closed. Although they do admit no evidence linking him back to it, no what they called magic wand saying this is this is the link between him and Adam. It didn't exist. Just his confession, what there was of it. So when you ask, was Adam Walsh's killer caught? Well, I guess the only answer is maybe. At the very least, if it was Dahmer, he's not around to hurt anyone else anymore. And the same could be said for Otis Toole. But if the real killer was someone completely different, well, we can only hope for a miracle. At the very least, Adam's death wasn't in vain. John went on to catch hundreds of killers with the TV show America's Most Wanted. And together with his wife, Reve, they founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And yes, they are still together. And they went on to have three more children. Oh, and as for that Sears security guard that threw the kids out of the store, she became a trauma nurse. So that's your fun fact for today. And that's your recap. Thank you so much for coming down this rabbit hole with me. And if you like getting all the crime in half the time, we'd appreciate it so much if you took a minute to leave us a five-star review and subscribe so you never miss a recap. It just takes a second, but it really helps us grow the show. Until next time, take care.